We're up to the fourth mitzvah in the Torah. It's the first in the book of Exodus. The entire book of Genesis contained only three mitzvahs. Now we're in Exodus, and we have the first mitzvah, and this is the first one that's given not to individuals, but to a nation. In chapter 12 of Exodus, we've already experienced nine of the ten plagues in Egypt, and now it's time for the tenth plague and the preparations of the paschal offerings, the first original paschal offering in Egypt, and time for organizing the structure of the Jewish nation, and that is all predicated upon having a functional calendar. And therefore, in chapter 12, verse 2, we read that the Almighty tells Moshe and Aaron, this month is for you, the first of the month, and that we understand to mean that there is a calendar, and it has a system, and it has to be overseen, and it has to be managed, and it has to be fixed, and that's the mitzvah, the mitzvah of of managing, organizing, constructing the calendar. Now, there's two components to this mitzvah. Number one, there is the idea of assigning the lunar month. As we know, the Jewish calendar follows a lunar month, meaning the first day of the month is the first day of the lunar month, and that extends for the whole month. The month begins with the waxing phase of the moon. In the middle of the month, it's a full moon. And then it starts the waning period until we see it starts again. And that's the new month. That's how we follow that. The Jewish calendar follows a lunar month. Which, by the way, incidentally, the 15th day of Nisan is, of course, Pesach. The 15th day of Tishrei is, of course, Sukkot. If you'll go out Seder night and look at the moon, you'll see it's a full moon because it's the middle of the month. If you go out the first night of Sukkot, you'll notice as well it's a full moon. Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the month. Therefore, either you won't see the moon at all or you'll see a slight sliver, a waxing, slight waxing crescent of a new moon. Now, the problem here is just the, the basic astronomy that we only have a month constructed of whole days. You can't have a month that is 29 and a half days long because it has to either have 29 days or 30 days. You can't have half days. Now, a lunar month, and this we already know this figure comes from ancient times and it's still accurate today, a lunar month is roughly 29 and a half days long. So if you take the beginning of the new month, right when the month, right when the moon is turning into a waxing crescent, and you kind of want to see where that's going to be next time, it'll be exactly 29 days, 12 hours, and 44 minutes, and three seconds later. It's a very precise number, but it's roughly 29 and a half days, and therefore it creates a major problem. If months have to be constructed of full days, can't have a 29 and a half day month, and the lunar cycle takes 29 and a half days, then every month there's going to have to be a decision, is it going to be a 29-day month, and it'll skew shorter, or is it going to be a 30-day month and it'll skew, skew longer? And the first mitzvah given to the Jewish nation is figure this out. Figure out how to have a functional calendar and assigning a lunar month. If that was all we needed to do, if that was the extent of this mitzvah, it would be much easier than it is. 
because part of managing a, a calendar is harmonizing a lunar month with a solar year. The year cycle doesn't follow just 12 months, you have a new year. Because if it did, well, 29 and a half times 12 is 354 days. Now we know that a solar year takes 365 and a quarter days, which is why in the Gregorian calendar that's followed by most of the world, it's a fairly simple calendar to maintain. Every year, you have 365 days. Every fourth year, you add a February 29th because really it's an extra quarter day that's not accounted for. Every hundredth year, you don't add a 29th of February even though it's part of the four-year cycle because it's slightly less than 365 and a quarter days. It's only five hours and 55 minutes. But every 400th year, you do add a February 29th. Every once in a while, you add a leap second just to balance things out and you're good. That's the solar calendar that we follow in America. It's not very difficult because it's, it's, it's sort of fixed. The Jewish calendar is the only calendar that's going to try to maintain a lunar month but accommodate a solar year. So, for example, you have the Muslims, which they follow a lunar month as we do, but they don't balance it out for the solar year. Thus, every 29 and a half days, they have a new month, and every 12 of those, they have a new year. And therefore, every year, the beginning of the year is 11 days earlier in the solar cycle than it was the previous year, and so on. Thus, the month of Ramadan is the 12th month. It's from the previous one, which is always 11 days earlier in the cycle. So you have Ramadan in the winter. You only got to fast for a little bit. You got Ramadan in the summer. You got to fast for a lot longer if you're a Muslim. In fact, if you're a 33-year-old Muslim, you've celebrated 34 Ramadans because every 33 solar years, those 11 days added up to another year. And thus... You're keeping, if you're 99, you've had 102 Ramadans. That's a purely lunar calendar. In America, we celebrate or we maintain a purely solar calendar. In Judaism, we're doing both. Lunar months, solar years. And therefore, we have to accommodate these two essentially incompatible systems and we have to figure out a way to harmonize the two. So first component of this mitzvah is figuring out which day is the new day, the first day of the new month. Is it 29 days? Is it a 29-day month and then day 30 is the first day of the next month? Is it a 30-day month and then day 31 is the first day of the following month? That's the first component. And the second component is to harmonize lunar months with a solar year. Now, how do we do that? So this year, the year 5779, this Jewish year is a leap year, meaning that the month of Adar, the month that we celebrate Purim, we're going to have Adar 1 and Adar 2. We're adding a month. And the reason for that is because every 19 years, there's roughly seven leap years, meaning seven years in which you're adding an additional month additional lunar month, so to speak, which is going to make up 
for the 11 days that you've lost with respect to the solar year. So that's a little complicated, meaning every either two years or three years, you're going to have a leap year. And just the simple mathematics, if you have to make up 11 days every year, then every 19 years, you have to make up how many days? 19 times 11 is 209. We'll round it up to 210. Seven months, 30 days, 210. That's the basic mathematics. So every 19 years, we're going to have seven leap years scattered out every two or three years, spaced out every, spaced out every two or three years. And that will keep the system in balance. Pesach will always bring the spring. Circus will always be in the fall. Hanukkah is always going to be in the winter and so on. This process, the system of managing a calendar is given to us. And that's in fact what it says. It's like whatever the court decides, whatever they decide Rosh Chodesh is, even if they may be wrong once every decade or so, they may have gotten bad information, their calculations have been off, doesn't matter. It's tasked with the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, to figure out when Rosh Chodesh is, to assign Rosh Chodesh, and that's when the holidays that follow fall out. Now, there's a, there's major consequences here. Uh, Yom Kippur, for example, is the 10th day of the month of Tishrei. Well, when is Yom Kippur? It depends when the first day of Tishrei is. And in fact, there's a very famous episode in the Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah. A large part of it deals with this laws, the laws relating to assigning the calendar, fixing the calendar, managing the calendar. There's a very famous episode where two of the greatest rabbis of the time, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah and Rabbi Gamliel ben Nasi, they had a disagreement when the first day of Tishrei was, and by extension, when the fifth, the tenth day of Tishrei was, namely when Yom Kippur was. And the court decided that it was day X, and one of the rabbis disagreed and said it was day Y, and therefore, when's Yom Kippur? And there was a concern that this could maybe lead to a schism. You know, if we have a nation where half the people are keeping one day Yom Kippur and the other half, uh, people down the block are like, no, that's not a regular day. They're, they're, you know, eating ice cream and having a good time. Well, then you have two religions. And therefore, the great rabbi, the Nazi said, listen, we're, we're the Sanhedrin here. And what we ruled, that's final. The Torah says, whatever day is assigned, by the court, that is a day which is Yom, which is Rosh Chodesh, by extension, which is day which is Yom Kippur. And he told the other rabbi, I command upon you to show up on the day that you think is Yom Kippur, show up in my house with your staff, with your money pouch, i.e. desecrate Yom Kippur, just to show that there's not going to be a schism here. We're not going to develop different factions. Everyone's going to be unified in when Yom Kippur is. And of course, Rabbi Yeshua shows up and he kisses him on his forehead. He says, well, welcome, my teacher, my student. You're my teacher because you're greater than me in Torah, but you're my student because you listen to my ruling. Essentially, what we're being told is that the Almighty says, I want you to be in charge of it. And the, the, the Talmud even says is that the, the heavenly court, so to speak, sits there and waits. When will the Jewish court, the human court, the earthly court, the terra firma court decide when Rosh Chodesh is? Maybe that's why it is Byzantine. And difficult to figure out because that's the responsibility. The Messiah says, I'm going to give you the responsibility. It's in your hands to determine when Rosh Chodesh is and I'm going to wait for your ruling. So how is this done? 
So it's clear from the Talmud that it's a hybrid of astronomical calculations plus witness testimony. The great sages would have a, uh, a very comprehensive knowledge of the astronomy involved, knowing when the various constellations are scheduled to appear and what the timeline is, but that would not be enough. And therefore, the court would be stationed in Jerusalem and they would know which day is a potential day for witnesses to come and their testimony to be legitimate. And therefore, if witnesses come, and if they come on the day where they know it's not possible, they would just discard those witnesses as false witnesses. Whereas if it was a day that it was possible for the new month to have to have appeared in the sky, based upon their astronomical calculations, then the court would accept their testimony, they'd investigate the witnesses, interrogate them, cross-examine them, and if they find that their testimony is legit, is legit they would actually uh, christen the new the new month that day is Rosh Chodesh and they'd send the message out to everyone everyone knows to adjust their calendar which day is Rosh Chodesh and then the following days of the month will follow uh that pattern it's definitely it's remarkable the the astronomical knowledge in the Talmud stands the test of time even today where we have all kinds of scientific implements to figure it out it's amazing that their system and 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 their uh, mathematical analysis of the uh, of the cycles is still true today now one of the things one of their commandments that makes this a little bit tricky is that it has to be done in front of the sanhedrin the high court and it can only be presided over by Judges who are absolute experts, meaning that there was something called smicha, which is rabbinic ordination, not the, not the kind that we have today, but the kind that goes all the way back to Moses. Meaning Moses gives smicha, he confers this ordination on Joshua, and that goes on generation to generation, scholar to scholar. That was only done in Israel, and that was only done to absolute sages who knew all of Torah. And it's clear from the sources that only someone who has smicha is a good candidate to oversee the managing, maintaining of the new month. And therefore, as we, as the Jewish people start leaving Israel, and as smicha becomes a more difficult institution to maintain, there's going to be an intractable problem because how do you maintain a month? Like now, we don't have a Sanhedrin today. We haven't had a Sanhedrin since the 4th century. Yet we're told that only a Sanhedrin can decide when the new, when the new month is. And therefore, there, there's going to be a, a major clash, a, a collision with destiny when the Sanhedrin eventually is going to disband and flee for a variety of reasons. But the Jews are going to be moving to Babylon primarily and the Sanhedrin is only located in Israel. There's going to be a problem. And the great, 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 great grandson of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who is the final head of the Sanhedrin, the final Nasi, his name was Rabbi Hillel, Hillel the second. He's 400 years from Hillel the first. And he is going to oversee, uh, the final act of the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin is about to disband, about to close up shop, at least 
for a thousand or two thousand years. We're still waiting for them to open up again. The, their final act is going to be the consecration of new of the new months and the organization of the leap year schedule for all eternity. Meaning today, when we have a Rosh Chodesh, who decides Rosh Chodesh? It was decided preemptively by the Sanhedrin in the 350s, in the middle of the 4th century, and they consecrated all the new months from that point until Messiah comes and we reinstitute the Sanhedrin, we can do it again manually. So again, we're using this, this hybrid of the astronomical knowledge plus the ruling of the Sanhedrin, and that is the calendar that we still follow today. And that calendar was updated and amended slightly, uh, given certain structure. So, for example, the ninth century became a 247-year schedule, which is 13 times 19. So, like we said, there's a 19-year cycle, but really it's 13 cycles of 19 years. And every 247 years, it perfectly aligns. And that once you know the 247-year cycle, you just do that every 247 years. No big deal. And uh, that's the calendar that we still use today. Now, there is another interesting component to this, because once the court in Jerusalem had decided when Rosh Chodesh is, everyone in the room knows when Rosh Chodesh is, when the first day of the month is, uh, maybe everyone in the city could know very quickly, but what about the Jews living in Baghdad or the Jews living in northern Israel? How do you spread the message? And the Talmud says that they came up with an innovative solution. They would go at night on the mountaintops and they go for the first mountain was right outside of Jerusalem. You have the Mount of Olives and they'd make a torch and they'd wave the torch in the middle of the night. And then a few miles uh, distance, there was another mountain and they would see the torch and they would light the torch and they would pass the message on. Eventually it would spread to the whole diaspora and that way everyone knows where Rosh Chodesh is. And this worked very well for hundreds of years. Uh, the problem is, is that there were certain factions, certain groups amongst the Jewish people who wanted to sabotage the system. And they sabotaged the system in two ways. First of all, they would go up to the mountaintop and they would just randomly pick up nights, nights that it wasn't decided that that, that that day was Rosh Chodesh, and they would just send the message. And the people on the next mountain don't know the difference. They're waiting. Is, is it Rosh Chodesh or not? And eventually the wrong day would be cyber would be sent through this method to the whole Jewish nation. Everyone would be a day off. And a second way that they would sabotage the system would be by hiring, by conscripting false witnesses to go make up a story. Yeah, we saw the new moon. It looked like this. It looked like that. And that way they would corrupt the system by planting false witnesses. And therefore, as a result of this sabotage, they changed the rules. The first rule is that they only accept testimony from people that they know are not tricksters. People that can be vouched for, that they are legit. They're not going to deliberately mess things up. Number one. Number two, they ceased the method of disseminating information using the mountaintop method, using the torch method, and instead they would send messengers. Now, how long does it take to send a messenger from Jerusalem to Baghdad? According to Google Maps, it's 226 hours on foot. So how long is that? It's a long time. It's about 10 days. So it would take around 15 to half a month before the people 
in Baghdad or even further in the Persian Empire would get the actual hard information from Jerusalem with reputable messengers. Previously, it was almost instantaneous, but later on, it became a more manual and the people would have to literally walk or take a caravan to get to these far-flung corners of the Jewish diaspora. As a result, in many places in the diaspora, they would not know in time for Pesach, was it was the previous month a 29-day month or was it a 30-day month? And therefore, in order to cover their bases, they would celebrate the first day of Pesach on, on two days. The two days potentially when it could be, if it was a 29-day month, then day 30 was the first day of the month, and therefore 15 days later is the first night of Pesach. If it was a 30-day month the previous month, or day 31 was the first day of the month, then 15 days later from that is the, is the first night of Pesach. And they would celebrate both days. And that became the process. In Israel, it was much closer. So the Sanhedrin would rule in Israel, and the message would arrive in time to all parts of Israel in time for Pesach and time for Sukkot. However, outside of Israel, it would take longer, and therefore they would observe two days. Now, Rosh Hashanah is the one exception. Rosh Hashanah is the first day, the first day of the month. Therefore, even in Israel, if you're in Tiberia, for example, you don't have enough time to get the message in time because it's that day. And therefore, you don't want to miss Rosh Hashanah, and therefore, even in Israel, you would keep two days. And till this day, in Israel, they celebrate two days of Rosh Hashanah, and the whole world, in fact, we celebrate two days of Rosh Hashanah. But the rest of the festivals, the rest of the holidays, it's just outside of Israel, just the diaspora, where we celebrate two days of the festivals. Now, the, the Talmud actually asked this question, today, like post-Hillel II, we were no longer using the manual method of when Rosh Chodesh is, sending the messengers, even spreading with the torches. We don't do that anymore. It's already been consecrated ahead of time. Why outside of Israel do we still maintain the two-day Rosh, uh, festival cycle? And the Talmud asked the question in the book of Beits on page 4. And it says that, yes, indeed, you're right. From the mathematical perspective, from the astronomical perspective, we shouldn't be celebrating two days. But part of the ruling of Hillel II Sanhedrin, that they're going to consecrate all Rosh, Rosh Chodesh's ahead of time, and they're going to establish a calendar ahead of time, is to not disrupt the two days of festivals that in, in the diaspora. Meaning, for hundreds of years already, it was practiced in the diaspora to keep two days of, of, Rosh, of, of all the festivals. And therefore, part of the deal that he made uh, that his Sanhedrin, the last ruling of his Sanhedrin made to establish the months ahead of time, part of that was not to upend the practice that, that was in effect for hundreds of years that out of the diaspora they maintained two days. So if someone tells you today that the reason why in New York, LA, or Houston, we celebrate two days of Pesach has something to do with the fact that we don't know which day Rosh Chodesh is, that's not correct. We do know what day which day Rosh Chodesh is because that we we got that information ahead of time thanks to Hillel II. The reason why it says the Talmud is because he established that we do not upend that tradition with his new innovation of him fixing the calendar ahead of time. This mitzvah, I think, gives us a few interesting things to dwell upon. A, the remarkable knowledge, scientific astronomical knowledge that we had thousands of years ago 
Like in the Talmud, it talks about down to the millisecond how long a lunar month is, information that stands the test of time, number one. Number two, I think another powerful lesson from this mitzvah is the idea that the Almighty says it's going to be a partnership. He could have made it a lot simpler. And I always say that if, if, some, if there's a mistake in the Gregorian t- calendar, like what's the worst thing that could happen? You'll miss your tax filing deadline, contracts that got messed up, and you'll forget your anniversary. Those are the worst things that could possibly happen. Us, our entire religion hinges upon us having a functional calendar. If we don't have a functional calendar, we don't have religion. God says, you know what? I'm going to give that to you, to Moshe and Aaron, to the Sanhedrin, to the court of each generation. It's up to you to figure out, to make sure, to assure that we have a functional calendar that works.